In the 19th century, if you happen to be a young boy cooped up in the heavily populated East Coast, the world of cowboys and Indians might seem just too remote to even dream of. But instead, you might look up to whalers as the epitome of the American masculine ideal. The heyday of whaling in 19th century America is really sort of tied in with the masculine idea of freedom at sea um, that, that ran counterpart to the allure of the American West. So this is a romantic notion um, that imagined the freedom in this space of adventure to a large degree because it was outside the boundaries of civilization. That's Anita Denier. She's an associate professor of English at Rhode Island College. They were trying to escape the busy world of women. So you think of, if we think about, you know, Huck Finn trying to avoid, you know, being civilized by Aunt Sally or, or of course, Ishmael, who was drawn to the, wa- the water to avoid the boredom and drudgery of being nailed to his office, to office desks. But that was also wrapped up with this idea of, uh, of this space that was um, uh, what I call the maritime romantic ideal, which is often associated with the notion of the brotherhood of the sea. Uh, Wait a second. Weren't there any sisters of the sea? In fact, now that I think about it, that has kind of a better ring to it. Well, in reality, there were sometimes women on board. But even when there weren't any women, whaling ships often replicated gender roles among the men on board anyway. The division of labor replicated certain gender roles that, in the absence of women, were assumed by men. So the men that were assigned positions typically associated with women's work, the cook, the steward, and the cabin boy who would serve as sort of a a valet um, and housekeeper for the captain's quarters, um, those were often coded as feminine. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, the harpooners, the hunters, were seen as as hyper-masculine. Interesting. So even in the far-flung reaches of the sea, whalers allowed civilization to creep on board their ships. Good point, Nathan. And, and Ed, are you saying that there actually would be women on board? Well, sometimes. And if there was a woman on board, it would have been the captain's wife. I guess you could say that getting to bring your wife along was a perk of the job. One of his perks, perhaps, but probably not much of a perk for her. I thought sailors used to say that bringing a woman on board was bad luck. Yeah, there were a lot of superstitious beliefs and a lot of ambivalence about women going on board whaling ships from all concern, from the ship's owner to the women themselves. Owners liked the idea that a woman on board would be a civilizing influence, uh, thinking, for example, that the captain would not condone illicit sexual encounters between the men and island women. The biggest argument against wives on board was really the potential conflict of interest. Because if a captain believed his wife to be uh, deathly ill, she was going into labor, she, he felt as though she needed to go ashore, this could influence him to leave lucrative whaling grounds in order to take his wife to port. As for the captain's wives, once they were out at sea, some tried to make do and carry on with their maternal duties even amid the chaos of a long, grueling voyage. One captain's wife kept a diary about her experience raising kids while whaling. Well, um, Eliza Williams talks about um, her trying to keep her little boy safe during a a gale, and she writes about um, an awful swell and everything is rolling about the ship. And and she writes, it seems as if she is going under sometimes. The chests and trunks that are not made fast go across the cabin. 
Um, and another thing that she talks about is trying to keep the child clean. And anyone who has tried to keep a two-year-old out of a mud puddle or away from harm can uh, may, may be amazed at the, the challenges of motherhood on a whaling ship. She writes, All three of the ships are boiling today. We are also caulking decks and consequently are dirty enough. Willie has a good time with it all, and between the oil and tar, I can't keep him clean an hour. I gotta say, I wouldn't want to be responsible for keeping kids away from boiling whale blubber. That definitely doesn't sound like a fun parenting situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. These were pretty courageous parents, Nathan. Can you imagine how many times they had to listen to, are we there yet? (laughs) (laughs) But not all captains' wives had the determination to make it work. Eliza Brock also kept a diary of her journey at sea, and well... She hated every minute of it. Her diary is in the Nantucket Historical Society, and it is full of pages and pages of original poetry, and it's all just extremely mournful. One stanza of her poetry reads, When will kind fortune set me free that I shall leave the boisterous sea? I love my friends. I love the shore. I long to leave of ocean's roar. So you've got whalers chasing freedom at sea, and I bet many of the captain's wives probably were chasing freedom on the shore when they got a chance. Oh, certainly. (laughs) This sentiment is probably best expressed in the Nantucket Girls Song. She says, I have made up my mind now to be a sailor's wife, to have a purse full of money and a very easy life. And then uh, later she says, then I'll haste to wed a sailor and send him off to sea, for a life of independence is the pleasant life for me. And in reality, the vast majority of women happily stayed behind on land. And those women could have gained some independence on land, I suspect, unlike the whalers trapped on those long voyages. Yeah, and their sense of isolation might help explain the myths that began to spread, myths about women sneaking onto whaling ships disguised as men. Okay, Ed, clearly you've been watching too many HBO shows. That's not something that really (laughs) happened, right? We know of a few women who masqueraded as men on whaling voyages, but we really don't have much evidence because they didn't write diaries, they didn't write their stories down like the whaling wives did. We don't know that there were many, but we do know that there were one or two. Um, But we do know that that was a a popular idea, a popular sort of romantic fantasy about the cross-dressing cabin boy. But since we don't have access to these women's stories as told from their own perspective, we spoke to an artist, Naveen G. Condosos, who imagined what it would have been like on board a whaling ship disguised as a male. And in a piece of performance art, she actually went on a ship and tried to embody the experience of these women who went on whaling ships disguised as men. Now that's really a commitment to her craft. Absolutely. Here's how she describes what she imagines life was like on board. The things that always struck me were this feeling of um, isolation and being in a very, very enclosed space um, and not being able to leave that space at any point, Um, but being surrounded by a vastness. I think that's the real kind of dichotomy that really interested me. And I think that maybe time as well, I can imagine that the notion of time must have been very different as well. Um, You know, you had these kind of huge stretches of boredom. So I think... All in all, I'm not sure like, how much fun it was. So you're saying that to fill the boredom, they started imagining that women were on board with them? Exactly. That could be one explanation. Often the mythology is that this woman has met a sailor on shore, 
um, and she has fallen in love with him. And when he has to depart, she is so forlorn that she decides that she must go and join him wherever he is. Um, so she dresses as a man in order to do this. You know, the end goal is normally love. You know, they're trying to rejoin something or somebody rather than wanting that life for themselves. But I think that's much more, you know, the, the stuff of stories. In one of the few recorded instances we have of a woman disguising herself as a man on a whaling ship, it seems like romantic love was hardly a motivation. We know about the story of Georgina Leonard through other sailors' correspondence about her. Scholars have been able to piece together how she tried to pass herself off as George Weldon on a whaling ship in 1862. Um, she'd already had several brawls with um, her fellow crew members, but she pulled a knife on one of her fellow uh, crew members when she got into a fight with him for when she was accused of not rowing um, well enough and, and sort of being lazy. And she pulled this knife out. And at the moment of her being punished back on the boat, she went to the captain to reveal her gender and to say to him, that actually, like, you know, sort of taking my shirt off on the deck in front of the crew when you, you know, have to... Um, punish me, which was normally like being given, you know, sort of strokes on the back or something. Um, I think I'm going to try and get out of this by telling you that I'm Georgiana rather than George. Well, it sounds like she's pretty much in charge in this story, deciding how and when to present herself as masculine or feminine. So how did Naveen go about emulating Georgina? She went on a restored 19th century whaling ship with other academics, researchers, and museum patrons, and throughout the trip, committed to trying to emulate what Georgina must have gone through in trying to pass herself off as George. Um, you know, I went to a barber and had my hair cut short. I tried to, like, drop my voice um, a bit deeper than what it normally is um, and talk slightly differently and hold myself slightly differently. And, and I sort of, you know, tried to embody this uh, present but then whilst being on the boat, um, I was filming myself performing actions um, that would have been day-to-day -day things that a woman trying to conceal her gender, you know, Georgina passing as George, you know, how would she get dressed in the morning or undress at night without, you know, revealing her body? How do you deal with having a period when you're on board a boat? Um, how would you, how do you deal with that? Would you, you know, muss up your clothes or... The other thing was, you know, how do you go to the toilet? Like, how do you how do you pee or do other things in public in a way that would have been very normal with, again, without, like, revealing the that which is there or is not there? Well, that sounds like a lot of work even to be pretending to be a man on a ship. I can't imagine what it would have really been like. A very different picture emerges from the sea shanty that was most commonly sung, the handsome cabin boy. It is of a pretty female, as you shall understand. She had a mind for roving into some foreign land. Attired in sailor's clothing, this fair maid did appear, and engaged with the captain to serve him for a year. Oh, doctor, oh, doctor, the cabin boy did cry. The sailor swore by all that's good, the cabin boy would die. The doctor ran with all his might and laughing at the fun to think a cabin boy should have a daughter or a son. The sailors soon found out the joke, and all began to stare. The child belonged to none of them, they solemnly did swear. The captain's lady to him said, My dear, I wish you joy, for either you or I betrayed the handsome cabin boy. That she has to, like, be a sex object. That that's, like, her, that's her role, you know? 
you know, that the only way of being discovered is through like your body um, doing what a female body will do, which is to give birth because you've been having sex with the captain rather than because you were doing your job and like maybe you fell out of the, you know, sails and you like broke your leg and they had to undress you. In these popular myths, women on whaling ships were deprived of agency, objectified as something to be desired, or the butt of a joke. Yeah, and while the history of women in whaling may be sparse and does require us to fill a lot of gaps, the way women were affected by whaling, the stories told and imagined about them, do tell us a lot about how wide the possibility of finding freedom at sea truly was, or more often, was not. So guys, help me imagine a world where there is no plastic, there's no petroleum, there's just this giant whale as basically the chemical factory for American life. Apparently everything in one's house could be seen in one way or another relating to this industry. And I just ha- I'm just trying to imagine how all-encompassing whaling must have been to the average American in the 19th century. Well, I think uh, just about any household uh, would have been fortunate to have had uh, whale oil to run its lamps so much superior to anything else that was available to light mm. your home, far better than tallow candles or, um, or fire, <laughs> uh, and it had this clean, burning, uh, even kind of sweet-smelling whale oil was one of the greatest luxuries that you could have. And less visible, but probably just as important, was lubricating machinery. I mean, we're talking about the very period that the American Industrial Revolution is Mm. taking off and all those clanking machines, or many of them anyway, uh, are lubricated by whale oil. They're not just, you know, driving parts of the American economy. They're also objects of mythology, right? The Americans are wrapping stories around these animals and the hunting of them. I mean, what does that tell us, if anything? Well, certainly it seems to touch on a kind of theme that Americans plugged into literature and culture definitely in the 19th century. And that is, you know, the American as independent and Mm. strong and mastering nature. You know, I mean, it seems like whaling tales plug right into that idea of what the American was often seen as in the 19th century. Mm. Yeah, I think there's an element that the whaling industry remains kind of pre-industrial for a long time, even though, as Brian says, it actually plays a critical role in early industry. You know, you have the, you think about Moby Dick, uh, which I just listened to as an audio book uh, over many hours <laughs> recently. And so yeah, it, it's interesting to think about Yeah, exactly. And it, it, I was fascinated by it. And what was fascinating was not only the story, but also the incredible detail about what's involved in actually extracting uh, this oil from the whales. And yeah, you know, as people hmm. may recall from the book they didn't read in high school, uh, <laughs> that it, the enormous number of pages are spent talking about what's involved in not only capturing the whale, but then sort of hanging it beside the ship and excavating it, basically, and then boiling Mm. it down. I think that, you know, uh, you know, 
Herman Melville uses the story to talk about the remarkable diversity of people on the ship. Uh, you know, people from four corners of Earth, a so-called cannibal, an African-American enslaved boy, uh, a, a an African. Uh, and he has all these people on there, I think, to say something, too, about just sort of the um, ravenous hunger uh, for these rare goods that nature mm -hmm. has provided. It's a scary, scary novel about how we are driven by an almost irresistible urge for evermore. What strikes me is even though um, this is really an international enterprise, they're going into international waters, and we, we know that America from the very beginning is a trading nation connected to the whole world, yet this whaling community is such a world unto its own. You just think right. about the folks on the ship itself. Uh, you know, they went out sometimes for well over a year, multiple years. And so on the one hand, they're connected to it, you know, a nation that is trying to take its place among nations. And there's certainly connected to trade. On the other hand, the isolation and the kind of specialization that, that um you folks have talked about the skills required to extract the oil and not, not to mention catch the whale. I mean, it's, it's such a discreet, isolated community in so many ways. Hmm. So as a child of the 80s, I have to say that I, my earliest recollection of anything having to do with whaling is actually by way of science fiction. Um, and it's through Star Trek. And particularly the fourth Star Trek where the uh, crew of the Enterprise steals a Klingon vessel and tries to save all of existence by bringing a whale from the past back to the future. Great movie. Great movie. But, but it, does, it does actually speak to a, a, a real shift in the way that whales were considered. I mean, this is not the kind of beast of the you know, pre-industrial age, but this is actually a symbol of Earth on the brink. And I'm curious if there's, again, something hmm. that we can learn about the evolution of the whale as a symbol that somehow sheds some light on our own progress as a country. Oh, that's really fascinating, right? So the whale starts out as, as, as a scary thing, you know, representing this sort of uncharted space. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes linked to the Industrial Revolution, and it's a sort of mechanical slash productive thing. Mm -hmm. And now it's an endangered magical thing of the past. <laughs> right, you know, right. that's that's pretty striking. Uh, Nathan, my friend from South Florida, you <laughs> skipped one crucial stage in Joanne's uh, uh -oh. March O time. And that's consumption. <laughs> uh, consumption. And I don't mean I don't mean consuming the whale. I mean entertainment. You obviously uh, uh. were never dragged to the sequarium to see Hugo the killer whale. <laughs> and it's important to remember that before we started saving the whales, we enjoyed them as spectacles of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just uh, the sequarium. There were similar attractions out in California. Americans marveled at being able to keep such huge animals in hmm. captivity. And it was part and parcel uh, of the whole 20th century fascination with leisure and consumption and entertainment. 
So I'm thinking about the 19th century, you have the, the symbol of this whale as a, as a beast of the unknown, as a, a critical piece of an industrial world. And then you think forward into the 20th century and you have whales on bumper stickers or on posters with rainbows, right, flying through space. I mean, there's an entirely different meaning of the whale as part of our visual grammar and our cultural grammar as Americans. And I'm curious if there's anything that that tells us, that concrete transformation of the whale symbol from the 19th to the 20th century. Well, in many ways, that's the domestication of the whale that we were unable to accomplish in nature, right? Mm. We, we can't actually bring them to heel, so to speak, uh, but what we can do is turn them into a, a symbol, a commodity. And matter of fact, we've already passed mm. to the place now where Save the Whales has become almost a joke to some people, mm. right? Mm. It, it has true. become seen as the, the, the very embodiment of the fruitless, you know, environmentalism um, that like being a tree hugger, so right. it's 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 passed even beyond you know the bumper sticker to the post bumper sticker, and save the whales. The whole idea of save the whales, interestingly, really does um, in a warped kind of a way um, celebrate or certainly symbolize the whale as victim. Hmm. Whereas you know a lot of what we've been talking about on this episode is the whale as this thrashing threat. Mm -hmm. So not only have we domesticated it, but we're, we're sort of domesticating it and symbolizing it as suffering at our hands. And yet, you know, what strikes me as the great common theme in all this is a kind of awe for the whale mm. of a sense mm -hmm. of they are mysterious. Um, you know, if you think back about the, all the superstitions surrounding the whale, uh, even at the time of their peak hunting, uh, and today we watch them, you know, on IMAX and uh, and really marvel at the ability to navigate the world in these oceans in patterns we still can't understand. Right. So I think there's still a kind of mystery about them that makes them perpetually interesting. 